Hi enthusiasts, Gus Rowland here. I'm with Fanula Timoney. She's hopping about and you're about to listen to another episode of A Horse Walks Into A Bar. Fanula, good to have you back on the show. What's been occurring? The mares have all foaled and those that are going to are back in foal? Yeah, I think I'm just yeah waiting on one um, scan result. But yeah, everything else back in foal. Got four good colts on the ground this year. So all in all, good season. What's the vibe like at the end of a, end of a season? Is, it, is there a sort of collective exhale or is it now sort of just moving on to the next thing? Oh, yeah, not really. I mean, there's never really a, a definitive line of when it when it ends. But um, yeah, it certainly kind of rolls straight into um, you know being busy with the season to then being busy with the yearling sales. And um, from my point of view, yeah, you're straight into annotating you know sale catalogues for a few months. So um, certainly no immediate downtime once the season finishes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in that case, if you're so busy, we better get cracking. If you haven't already, make sure you follow us on Twitter or Insta at a horse walks pod. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. It's time for a little hi-ho lonro. If this is the first time you've listened, the first two are kind of self-explanatory. Our lonro is something that we have seen that continues to amaze us. Fanula, what's your hi this week? I've, as you know, been recovering from a broken leg the last couple of months. And then I'm finally able to weight bear a bit on it so I've been able to get out and about a bit more and um, it meant I was able to go visit my latest mare purchase that I bought online a few weeks ago um, Frivolosophy. I hadn't met her in the flesh until this week so that was um, lovely to go go see her. Sometimes when I see a mare online I um, try and nearly find a reason to buy them because <laughs> uh, I just loved her as a type and I loved her bloodlines but um she had quite a light pedigree, mm-hmm. but like she was a tabby stock, uh, tabby stock mare out of an O'Reilly mare, who was out of the Saint again, and then that mare was out of the Santaine mare. So I absolutely loved her bloodlines, and she looked a lovely type, but her pedigree read quite light. So I kind of, you know, started looking into it in the hope to find something there that would give me a reason to to buy her maybe as a broodmare prospect. And um, sure enough, I saw her three-year-old half-sister called Philico Terzier um, by Complacent, who's racing in New Zealand, had won two starts this season. So when I looked at it closer into that, I saw that um, you know she'd won the boat very easily and her trainer, Robbie Patterson, said that she's potentially the best horse he has ever had, which pricked my ears because, you know, as you know, he's, he's had some very good ones go through his stable um, and he's been talking her up as an Oaks Philly long-term. So... With that, I um, decided to buy this mare, and um, you know she's a she's won a couple of races in a city place, um, so she's not without merit. But um, bought her, and I picked her up for just two grand, which I was delighted with. And, wow! Uh, so when I met her, you know, sometimes when you buy something online, you, you're kind of worried, but um, now she actually exceeded my expectations. She's a lovely type of mare. She's got a gorgeous personality to boot, and. Um, I'm like I have in the back of my mind, you know, if she doesn't get that pedigree update, I'll uh, I think I might use her as a you know a riding horse down the line and uh, retrain her as an off the track prospect. And um, I think she certainly wouldn't look out of place in a show ring. And even her star, actually, I don't know if you remember Langton Rupee had her star. Yeah, the love heart one. <laughs> yeah, she has one just like that. So um, <laughs> she's a she's a very pretty mare. Yeah. But, um, that was my high of the week. It's getting to go and say hello to her. And you're collecting Tavistocks, aren't you? You're, you're, you're like uh, Lloyd Williams yeah. used to be with the Beals. I do. And look, I mean, at the moment, you know, you can still, you know, it's it's as as great as he's, as he's shaping up as a broodmare, sorry. You can still actually, well, I can afford them still. So mm. I'm trying to buy a few if I see them because uh, I think they'll be like Henstich, obviously. And then, you know, of course... We lost him prematurely, so there won't be too many of them in years to come. So, yeah, I'm definitely a fan of his daughters. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, my high is uh, the colours of Dulcify saluting at the Valley last week with Croatian Bell, uh, the two-year-old owned by a syndicate of ladies heading up to the Magic Millions. When I was at Sky, a lot of the guys who were TV people in the control rooms but not racing people, whenever they'd be doing a midweek shift, you know, at at Canterbury or something like that, and they'd see the Dato Tanchin Nam colours go by, they'd be like, oh, there's the Saintly colours or something like that. And I kind of love that about racing, that if if a horse goes out wearing the blue with the M, people will say, oh, it's Winx's colours. There's sort of a, when a colour, when a set of silks attaches itself to a single horse as sort of a touch point, I think that's a really cool part of this this game that that people just passing can can attach emotion to a set of colours and a horse and and seeing Croatian Bell win during the week I couldn't help but think of of Dulcify a horse that raced before I was born but is so famous and the colours are, are so rarely seen it's nice to see them them cropping up and and obviously you know you have horses like Animo nobody's going to be looking at the Godolphin colours and saying oh they're the Animo colours or the uh or the navy blue of Coolmore and saying oh they're the Galileo colours uh but every now and then you do find colours that are linked to a to a specific horse and I, I love that about this industry yeah for sure it's like you know those polka dots of black caviar you know it's, it's such a household you know it's fixed in everyone's in mind who, who those colors belong to so yeah it's good your low for this week is uh, around connecting horses to to one another but this time it's erroneously <laughs> yeah so like i'm forever as you can imagine you know be looking up the pedigrees of of the mares i have you know following the immediate you know relations and the progeny seeing what pedigree updates might be in the pipeline, that kind of thing. And um, the last few months, um, the first foal out of one of my mares, a three-year-old capitalist filly called Kirsten. Um, when I bought the mare ahead of the season, you know, she just had one start up in Queensland for Lee Friedman. And then uh, the last few months, I was pleasantly surprised to see her name pop up in Japan. And she placed in her first two starts there in October or November. And I thought, oh, this is good. It might have a nice pedigree update for this mare, you know, because I bought the mare with the view to pin hooking her. I'm ahead of next season to sell her on again. And I thought, anyway, this filly's off to a good start. And, um, you know, could well get her win in Japan by the in the coming months by the look of her form. And uh, anyway, earlier in the week, I was going through the pedigrees again. And when I looked it up, all of a sudden, um, the record for this mare was just saying raced once as opposed to... Um, place in Japan in 2022 I was a bit I was a bit baffled and I got on to Andrew Stewart at Arian and I you know it's like what's the story here Andrew I said you know last time I've looked at this pedigree you know it says in black and white you know this filly's placed in Japan and now it's just saying she's raced once and um, I must say I've never come across an error like it with their system and you know he assured me it's extremely rare but because there's another three-year-old filly in um, Japan at the moment with the same name, they were feeding her race results through to the three-year-old out of my mare for a few months, and then obviously the system has corrected itself. So um, I was a little deflated that I'm not about to have a big Japanese pedigree update with this mare, but um, it, it gave me a, a giggle. What a bummer. Oh, man. I, I love that you tracked it down. You're like, there's something going on. There's something fishy going on here. Yeah. And Arian, Arian, as you said, Arian really make these mistakes and clearly yeah. they've corrected yeah. the, this one fairly efficiently, which is very much their style. All right. Well, my low is, it's an extreme low, I, I must say. Every once in a while, we're reminded just how much the people riding these magnificent animals for our pleasure risk. Uh, last week at Ashburton in New Zealand was one of those reminders. 26-year-old apprentice Megan Taylor was riding Red Orchid in a maiden when there was a four-horse fall entering the straight and a horse made contact with Taylor while she lay on the track. She was pronounced dead not long after. Megan had taken up race riding relatively late in life, having spent time with star eventers Janelle and Tim Price over there in New Zealand. She'd been race riding for three years and had claimed 16 wins, but judging by the outpouring of grief from those that knew her and the tributes, her impact was anything but statistical. 
Fanula, only a few months ago, we lost Taiki Yanagida in New Zealand. We had Maddie, Maddie Derrick on the show the other week with Kristen, and she's on the comeback from a debilitating injury sustained in a track work accident. It takes a special kind of bravery to be a jockey, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it really does. And, um, you know, when you hear of these tragic accidents, it puts everything into perspective. Um, because, yeah, it is very easy, you know, if you're having a few bets down the pub and on a weekend, you know, watching the races, you know, it's very easy to forget, actually, just how dangerous this sport is and how skilled these jockeys are to do what they do you know um, day in day out but, um, unfortunately like like anything in life occasionally um, you do get some awful accidents that's a really good point actually for Nula. like it's very easy for us to criticize a jockey for for a poor ride but the fact is even when they're slaughtering one they're probably doing better than i could do oh yeah and i mean like I, I'm a, a horse rider myself, but I mean I, I've never race rode. But like even as a rider, you'd you'd have a greater appreciation for just the skill level and the danger involved because um, it really is one of the toughest sports in the world from from that point of view. Yeah, and our condolences obviously are with Megan's family. Okay, well it's a bit tough to sort of pick up after <laughs> that. But um, did you have a long row this week? Yeah, um, I think my Lonro kind of goes back to my mayor of Frivolosophy and and um, and her kind of arrival um, because uh, her I purchased her off um, Inverell trainer Danny Shriek and I didn't realise at the time I, I learned afterwards she was actually Danny's first win, uh, winner as a trainer. Um, oh wow! So I think that you know Danny with, with that in mind as well. She was particularly fond of this mare and. When I spoke to her, you know, after after buying the mare online, just you know, arranging pickup and stuff, she actually, you know, broke down crying on the phone. You know, she was that upset to see to see her mare go, but you know, she was delighted. You know, I bought her, and you know, she knew she was going to a, a good home. But um, I was, I thought it was lovely when the mare actually arrived off um, the SET truck. And Danny had actually sent a bag of carrots with her and uh, sent a lovely, you know, card. Um, with her as well you know just you know outlining how grateful she was you know to see her go to such a good home and I think yeah you know it's a it's a good reminder to people like just you know whether you're a breeder or a trainer and I think you know for the fans of racing to realize how much we love these horses you know it's not just a financial exchange when, when you buy or sell a horse you know there's a lot of emotion involved and um, and I know even like from my own point of view I'd, I'd half a dozen or so mares I have now there's I think three three of the mares um, you know, owners that you know had, were involved in their racing careers have reached out since I bought them you know whether it be, be via email or Twitter or Facebook you know to, you know sending me lovely messages telling them about their stories you know when they were involved with the horse and you know asking if they can have the occasional update and photographs and you know they love hearing how those horses are going and you know they love hearing about if they've, you know, fall down, how their foals are going and, you know, they want to hear when you've made, when they're named so they can follow those. And yeah, I think, I think it's, it's lovely. Um, and I think, you know, people, I'm sure I'm not the only breeder that gets contacted by um, people that have, you know, raced their mares, etc. in the past, but, uh, it's certainly, you know, a great reminder, um, how much I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're all in it for the love of the horse above anything else. Um, yeah, I like that because we talk a lot about the one of the comms in uh, in breeding and bloodstock, which is commerciality. What we don't talk about is the other com, which is community. And and in many ways, the uh, the these horses tie complete strangers together in a way that you know even even social media can't do organically. And I, I've never, until you brought this up, I've never thought of it this way, but it does. They do. They build bonds between strangers, don't oh, they? Oh, yeah, honestly. Like even um, my, my other Tavi Stock mare, uh, she's a little bit of mare called Tavi Socks, and she was raced by grand syndicates. So, you know, there would have been plenty of owners um, in her when she was racing, but two of them separately have contacted me, you know, because I'm forever posting things about my horses, on, you know, on social media <laughs> and that. And, uh, you know, they'll see her on there and uh, one of the ladies in particular, like she even, like I think about a week before the, her Tavi Fox's foal was due this year, she emailed at me asking, you know, had it foaled yet because she knew she was due around that time and, you know, wanted, you know, was hoping that everything went well and, you know, that's, it's lovely. 
So, uh, you know, she, she sends me photos of some of her other horses she has. And, yeah, it's, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, my lawn rose around another horse racing professional with a big following, like you. Big, big news this this week. One of the great ones, Frankie Dottori, has announced that he will quit the saddle after next year's Breeders' Cup. I mean, you talk about things that continue to amaze you. This guy's career is amazing. He may not have always been the best jockey in the world, but he is one of racing's great characters and he has endured from his Magnificent Seven to Dubai Millennium. In fact, the whole Godolphin thing, that first derby on Authorised, remember that? Suspension. He's come back from there. Gosden, Golden Horn, and of course, in the twilight of his career, his relationship with two equine heroes in Enable and Stradivarius. There's a broken Lan Franco shaped mold lying around somewhere, isn't there, Fanula? No, it's actually when you kind of reel out those names of those some of those horses and the decades they span, actually it is quite amazing, isn't it? When you think of um, of what a I suppose the longevity of his success. Um, it's just scratching it, the surface too. I didn't yeah. even mention, you know, horses like Lamtara. Um, uh, fantastic light, Delami, you know, all of all of those those great horses, and he's still sort of punching them out. He survived a plane crash. I mean, this guy's done it all. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten about that actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's, and he's like he always seems to be on top of his game. He's oh, yeah, he's a great fan favorite. You know, his flying dismount. It'll be strange not having him race riding actually, because you know he's been a fixture for decades. And a bit like gay, we use this term quite flippantly, but there are a few, only a few individuals in the world that are, are like these those two. That they actually are good for racing. They are ambassadors for the sport. Yeah, certainly they transcend kind of at every level. And and yeah, whether young fans, older fans, they um, somehow seem to just yeah draw everyone into uh, into racing, which is great. So his final year kicks off with a unique stint in California, which starts on Boxing Day, which is their Malibu Stakes Day at Santa Anita. That's something he's not really done. He's actually going to stay in America for three months uh, and and ride out there. Uh, Then he'll go through uh, Dubai, I imagine. He's he's aiming at the guineas for one of Gosden's and he'll go through the European summer, uh, finish with Champions Day and the Breeders' Cup. I tell you what, I mean, if Peter... Peter Volandis, if you are listening and you can somehow jag Frankie to come out for the championships, I mean, no one will do a farewell tour quite like Frankie de Tori. It'd be great if Australia was a stop on it. Yeah, <laughs> that would uh, certainly draw the crowds in, that's for sure. Okay, let's get into the straight six. And and as uh, as we mentioned, the, the championships will come up in April and one of the feature races, uh, uh, that is the... ATC Derby, the blue riband of the Australian turf. And our first in the straight six is Kovalika. So this is uh, Chris Waller's Ocean Park three-year-old that was very impressive in the Grand Prix on the weekend. The classics have been mentioned. I'm wondering, though, Fanula, is this a little bit of summer quiet time hype? Is Kovalika as good as the the spring three-year-olds we saw? In one way, it looks like actually all this kind of stars are aligning when you look at, you know, the, how, you know, this, the Grand Prix stakes, you know, proved, has always proved a good form guide. Um, but, um, you know, Gypsy Goddess, who won it last year, went on to win the Queensland Oaks. And then, mm-hmm. you know, talking about stars aligning, like she was a graduate of um, Gordon Cunningham's Curramore, as is Kovalika. As, yeah, okay. As is Tofane, you know, one of Ocean Park's um, best horses to date. Um, so from that point of view, you might be like, oh, there could be something here. But look, it is hard, I think, to judge the form. And to, I'm not sure what he was up against, but um, that you can't really knock a horse at the same time. That's won four of his five starts. And he's certainly got ability. And it'd be good to see Waller um, get a derby or two derbies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I... I, I... I I, hear, I think that's a really interesting part of the storyline, isn't it? Because the, the perceived wisdom is that uh, having Chris Waller as your conditioner gives you an extra chance. But derbies are something that ne- haven't necessarily been part of Waller's sort of resume yeah. career-wise. 
And and he now seems to be trending in that classic direction. It's interesting, yeah. Like, obviously, it's surprised even to read earlier in the week, you know, how Derby's eluded him so far. But because, um, you know, you just associate him with training these classic type horses and he does a great mm. job with them. But, um, yeah, look, it's only a matter of time. And, uh, yeah. yeah, maybe Kovalika will be, will be the first of them. We'll see. Watch this space. At least he's up in Queensland getting the sun on his back or, or whatever passes for sun on the eastern seaboard uh, these days. Number two, the Caviar family loves some drama, don't they, in one way or another. This weekend we saw Invincible Caviar dead heat at headquarters, which was really, really cool. But then the postscript was something completely different. She dead heated with My Yankee Girl, and then My Yankee Girl loses the race on protest. Uh, due to excessive use of the whip from Blake Shin. It's, uh, it, the race had everything. Yeah, it was quite dramatic, the whole thing. Even like when you saw my Yankee girl kind of swooping to the line, I actually thought she she was just about to get the better, um, get her nose in front. But um, oh, you'd, uh, you'd have to be shattered if you were her connections. Um, you know, obviously rules are there, um, but uh, yeah, it, it was unfortunate because she she did put have a very good race. I thought, as did the winner. So um, you wouldn't have minded seeing the dead heat upheld from that point of view. They both ran the blinders. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because this is. I, I don't want to editorialize here because I'm no expert on on uh, the whip and its and its true efficacy. Uh, in race riding, particularly now they have the padded whips and and that kind of thing. We might actually, I think we might get a couple of experts in to debate it at some point because I do think it's worth talking about because I think one thing this protest will do is it's that precedence, right? Now that there has been a protest upheld under the current set of whip rules in Victoria, we can't, put, the genie's out of the bottle a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we, we can't predict what will happen next. There are probably people now sitting back and thinking, oh, here's an opportunity because that's the way racing works, right? There's always people that think here's an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether the frequency of protests goes up in, in the near future. It will be interesting because, I mean, you know, whenever a result is, is turned around like that, it, you know, it can have huge consequences, obviously, for the value of, a, of the horse that comes second. Like, luckily for this Philly, you know, she was already, you know, a city winner and I'd say she'd go on and win a few more, not even black type, but, you know, if she hadn't already been a city winner and this was her last race, like she's a half sister to September run, you know, it's, it's a huge thing to, you know, get a city win on your resume versus uh, placing or, you know, just a country win. So these um, decisions, you know, have big consequences. So, I mean, you know, they're going to have to be consistent now with their rulings and um, going forward. But, yeah, it'll shake things up a bit, all right. Watch this space. The uh, the other element from the Caviar family on the weekend, of course, is uh, Black Caviar's little brother, Moshi, got the winner of the Kensington Stakes. Uh, I I love that. I mean, uh, we, we focus a lot on her daughter, but uh, remember when Moshi first emerged and he won his first couple and you just you started to think that Helsinger was just going to never throw a losing racehorse. Uh, and then he obviously didn't live up to, to mum or, or to all too hard for, for that matter. And he's now in Indonesia, I believe. But nice to see him get a get a black type horse on the board. Oh, yeah. And like that, that Helsing, like this family keeps throwing up new good horses. Like you've Hanseatic, I think. This season, I think one of Hanseatic's half sisters has thrown up a a good two year old. Um, there's forever black type updates happening in, in this. It's um, she's really created a dynasty that mare. Can I be a little bit nerdy too? And hopefully, you'll appreciate this being a a Coolmore resident. But knowing that the the Najinsky line is still throwing a few black type horses through Royal Academy and and, and Bell Esprit, is is nice because if I'm being completely honest, I don't think the Nijinsky sire line is long for this world as a sire line, but uh, it's nice to see it pop up once in a while. Yeah, and like Royal Academy actually is, I think he's probably my favourite stallion of all time. I just physically, I think he's like the epitome of what a thoroughbred should look like and he was a tremendous sire, you know, if you're into dosage and that breeding theory, you know, he was assigned check the race status because he has literally been a, a breed shaper, but um, 
Yeah, like it is a shame. I mean, if it does die out, that Sirline Bloodline, because he has been tremendous for the breed up until this point. Yeah. Well, another sideline that's sort of trending in the other direction from Nijinsky is the last tycoon sideline, specifically through written tycoon. And this week we've seen the re-emergence of capitalists to to a degree. We saw Sovereign Fund win the Magic Millions at Wyong, and then Lesigo wins in Sydney for for Chris Waller. Uh, I guess my observation on these horses is. They're doing what the first capitalists promised. And then he went very quiet. And I know the team at Newgate put that down to wet tracks to a degree. But, uh, you know, I mean, I I tweeted about it. Capitalist makes Rory's jester look like the sire of slow maturing types. Two-year-olds seem to be, pre-Christmas two-year-olds seem to be a a real strength of his. Uh, Yeah. I think several people would have breeded a sigh, a sigh of relief this week you know if you were a breeder that has bred to him this season at 99,000 he certainly would have bred a sigh of relief this week um, because uh, he unleashed two very exciting two-year-olds but like he needed to and he probably needs another week or two like it but um, they both actually look they look very good they were both expensive yearlings and um, they both look like they wouldn't be out of place in any slipper field, to be fair. Do you put any any credence in the wet track uh, uh, analogy? Yeah, look, it's, it certainly could be a factor. Um, you know, you'll often get uh, horses that really, uh, you know, favour one type of con- footing over another. But um, at the same time, <clears throat> when you have a horse standing for a very big fee, you know, they you need to... I you know, see a bit more consistency out of them. So um, it could come down to, you know, often you'll have a lull in the horse's career early on too. You know, they've served their best book in their first season and they might have acquired her two or three years and then, yeah, they start covering the good books again once once their first two-year-olds have raced and if they've done well, like obviously he's had. So I'd imagine, you know, we'll see an upward trajectory with him there going, going forward, you'd like to see. Well, his barn mate's our number four in our straight six. It was announced this week that Extreme, Extreme Choice will be uh, covering to Northern Hemisphere time, and not chattling, obviously, um, but uh, covering to Northern Hemisphere time. How do you think a horse like Extreme Choice would be received in the Northern Hemisphere? Or, I, I guess, how do you think mares that have been covered to Northern time by Extreme Choice would be received in the Northern Hemisphere? It's an interesting one. Like, I think it's great that they're doing it. I think it's great for Australian breeding, but it is a like, it's it's not, it's a tricky one in a way. Like, you can you know his statistics are unbelievable. You know he's proved he's a, he's one of the elite sires in the world from what he's done. But at the same time, because of those smaller numbers, he's not necessarily always going to have a real headline horse or you know each season and from a point of view of just you know being to the forefront of international breeding community and to the forefront of their minds he's not necessarily going to be an easy sell for them when you know you think of you know the you know if you're breeding off into northern hemisphere time to send them back down here you know you've got the likes of frankel and siuni and that um he's not an obvious choice but i think certainly and you know newgate will market him great he um he certainly isn't out of place and, and deserves to be doing it but um yeah it'll be interesting because obviously he's gonna be like those horses i just mentioned are based in the northern hemisphere like he's based here mm. and we don't see too often you know northern hemisphere breeders necessarily shopping at our mare sales you know with the view to put in uh you know cover them to northern hemisphere time down here and bring them up so it'll be great to you know if that becomes a, the new norm because um you know our genetics down here certainly have plenty to offer um, up there it'll be it'll be good to see you know a bit of the shopping going the other way for a change that's an interesting point actually it broadens the the gene pool but it also broadens the the buyer bench i, I guess if you you take a line through zoo star this is a horse that has shuttled. I mean, he's over there. They're very different animals physically, yeah. but you know, they they are typically horses that that get stocked that excel in Australian conditions. And he's had his fee lifted this year on the back of 
getting the Cartier champion two-year-old filly, but he's still only standing at £30,000 in in the UK, despite success. Commercially, Zoostar has struggled a little bit over there. I just wonder whether Extreme Choice uh, will will cut through to to the breeders there. Yeah, it'll be interesting, like, because, you know, as I say, he's obviously a household name here, but with breeders, but I'm not sure if he necessarily is there, so it will be interesting. And I mean, you'd think if he shuttled, he'd obviously get um, get more mares, but, I mean, you can understand, I doubt they'd want to shuttle him with the, with the value that he has um, in Australia. You'd feel nervous putting him on a plane, but um, the fact that he'll be based here for, for the Northern Hemisphere season makes it a, a little harder on him as well. Um, to get to the Can I ask a question that I haven't run past you before the before the episode that may that may uh, that may result in you having to uh, ask questions of the guys the the, the leadership of of Coolmore. <laughs> Why? Why hasn't So You Think done a bit more covering to Northern Time? I mean, surely if there's one horse standing in Australia that fits the profile, um, I know he he stood a season up there, didn't he? But is there any reason he hasn't covered mares? He had his chance up there, and I guess, you know, he, he didn't achieve up, up there here. So, I mean, from that point of view, perhaps if he hadn't shuttled there... And then, you know, for breeders up there to see what he's doing down here, it, it may well be something that would, would would be of interest. But I guess like yeah, the demand just hasn't been there. Like, I think it'll probably get people thinking now that Newgate are doing this with extreme choice, you know, because, you know, if, if any stallion at any stud is just, you know, on their summer holidays, so to speak, here for a few months, I don't think any stud master would be opposed to, um, you know, facilitating Northern Hemisphere time covers. It's just a case of, of demand. And I suppose up until now, at least, it hasn't really been a done, a done thing, you know, um, in this hemisphere to send them up there with these pregnancies. But we might, you know, we might begin to see that change. Yeah, yeah. Well, Colm, if you're listening, um, Fanula's got a new mare. <laughs> Uh, and I think as an experiment, a free non to Northern time would be a very interesting <laughs> experiment to, to try. So you think, uh, well, let's see where it goes from there. Number five, some genetic testing stuff. This is more up Byron street, but it's in the news this week, an international research team of geneticists from Asia, Europe, North America, and Ireland have compared the genomes of thoroughbred Arabian and Mongolian racehorses to horses bred for other sports and leisure and were able to pinpoint a set of genes for racing that play a significant role in muscle, metabolism, and neurobiology. As I said, this is normally Byron stuff, uh, but how far off, Fanula, do you feel that someone like yourself might be replacing pedigrees and bloodstock books with pipettes and bunsen burners? Um, I'd like to think it would never be replaced, but like, I think, you know, for many many years you know they often like they go hand in hand you know generally whether you're a bloodstock agent or a breeder you know you try and utilize everything that's out there that can you know help you when you're making um you know whether buying decisions or, or mating decisions um and i think like one thing i find interesting is often when when we see these papers and things being released their findings often coincide with what we've already known necessarily and how we've been selecting horses for many years we just haven't had the um you know i suppose a research paper to back it up but you know that this physical traits um you know have been part of the selection process for generations mm. and that obviously in turn shapes the breed anyway when people are breeding to certain physical traits so i mean it's no surprise then that someone can back that up with scientific research um but uh, yeah i think one sort of grows from the other um, you know, you can go back as to Federico Tessio and, you know, a lot of the, his processes, you know, are now probably backed up to a degree by science. And, you know, even something as simple as the dosage profile, you know, was, was all about grouping horses and their aptitudes um, to try and gauge, you know, what best racing aptitude, you know, the, the horse you're breeding, what kind of dis- what would be their optimum optimal race distance and you know then you've got plus vital you know with, with their speed gene tests and things 
now it's just a, a more scientific way to, to get the same answer at the end of the day. Um, so I think if we can help readers and agents, they, um, I think it's great when you, when you see these research papers, but I don't think it necessarily can replace the knowledge and expertise that have sort of been passed on through generations either. I mean, it's another tool to the armory, isn't it? And and we talk about this a lot, that, that there's no one way to uh, identify and more importantly, probably nurture a champion racehorse. Uh, you've just got to throw everything you've got at it yeah. <laughs> to, to a degree, knowledge-wise yeah. and, and information-wise. Yeah, you try and, you know, give yourself the best advantage because there is a lot of, you know, unknowns in it as well. And it's not... Um, it's not so easy to, to breed a champion like this look involved as well one guide to uh, a fairly reliable guide to future stars in japan has always been the two-year-old colts finale of the year the asahi high which ran on the weekend for the 2022 renewal it was something of a blanket finish but dolce moore was the winner he's unbeaten and and as i said he didn't dominate but very talented horse what, what i want to talk to you about though is He's by rulership, and along with Duramente, sire of last week's impressive Liberty Island out of Yankee Rose, and Lord Canaloa, who we know quite well in this part of the world thanks to Tagaloa, but also um, the great Armand Eye, these King Kamehameha sons are starting to provide a, a very viable alternative to Sunday Silence. And I guess we have it with the, the Dane Hill line here in Australia. It's nice to have a slight outcross to send your Sunday Silence line mares <laughs> too, I imagine, for Japanese breeders. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and they'd need it. But uh, no, it is like, he, and he's a stallion that has a kind of coming back into a purple patch, I think, because his first two group one winners, I think, were early on in his career. And then we didn't, you know, he had a few crops where um, where he didn't um, throw one so but he has had a particularly good year so um, I think it is good that he's you know he is a you know he's in the top ten sire premiership there and and he's certainly a, a bloodline that um, that they need there so it's great to see him actually getting the results. Isn't it interesting that the, I mean the two premier sire lines in Japan have become Halo through Sunday Silence, which is, which is apart from More Than Ready, who has, you know, forged his own path, has become functionally irrelevant in the rest of the world. And King Mambo, I mean, King Mambo had more sons retired a stud than just about any American stallion in, in, in the world for a period there, but very few of them landed. Yet in Japan, it's, it's become a viable alternate line. And, and they are outliers completely. You don't really see them dominating in any other part of the world, those two lines. Yeah, uh, they uh, they breed horses very differently there in that they really are the epitome, I think, of, you know, breed the best um, to the best. So they're probably the last people that that often use breeding theories and things um, and, and possibly not even being interested in genetic testing. You know, they're all about the athlete and what the sire has done, what the dam has done and... It's interesting, you know, and even, you know, you'll see very different physical types often that if they were to be presented at a yearling sale here, I think people would be thinking Jesus. But um, at the end of the day, they're, they're breeding athletes, you know, they're not too worried about everything else involved that people often get preoccupied in when, when breeding thoroughbreds for a sale ring or that. Um, and it just goes to show that their system works. You can't. You can't argue with that, but it's, it is a very different system. All right. Well, that's the straight six for this week. Let's check in with our California racing noob, Terry, with that's not what that means. My name's Terry. I'm a foodie and a sports addict with the exception of the races. Terry, what is an emu? Isn't an emu a flightless bird? So I'm wondering, is it like a horse that can't run but can strut and walk and mosey? Um, so it's like a, a, a rudderless, runningless horse, maybe? An emu. I probably would help if I could pronounce it right. Emu. 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 What is an emu? This is a good one because it's such an Aussie word, too. Um, I bet an emu 
it's like an attachment or part of what the horse has on it, like part of the saddle, perhaps like the stirrups, or maybe it's like the undercarriage of the saddle, like the thing you put the saddle on. Cause it sounds like an attachment of some sort. Yeah. I don't know. An emu. You are miles off. Okay. So I'll, I'll tell you what an emu is. So after the last race, an emu is the desperado that goes around picking tickets off the ground and seeing if someone's inadvertently dropped a winning one. They make the they make the motion of an emu if you like. A hobo. We call those hobos. Wow, okay. I've actually done that. I feel like the one time I went to horse racing I was like cuz I was so horrible at it. I went around just trying to scavenger scavenge for tickets. Well, I guess I have a new name, Emu. Um cool. Good to know. Good to know, my friend. Now, Fanula, you're Irish, which I'm sure may surprise some of our listeners because your your accent's almost completely disappeared. <laughs> I'm interested to know, did you know what an emu was before this show? Um, I didn't, actually, admittedly. I'm, I'm not sure we have emus in Ireland. Um on the tracks are often, but uh, no, I was, it was a new one on me. I, I won't lie. I hadn't heard about it. If, if you want to see an emu in Ireland, go to a zoo. All right. It's viral <laughs> vendor time. Each week I'll put a statement to our co-host and they'll tell us whether they agree or disagree. Are they buying or selling? That's why we call it viral vendor. Savvy. All right. You ready, FT? Yeah. Okay, so every year the first season hype machine fills a lot of marketing collateral for yearling sales, but just every now and again, the first two-year-olds of a second season sire creates such an impression that his second yearlings outsell his first. That said, our buyer or vendor for this week is, there are no sires with second crop yearlings that will receive a bump at the Magic Millions based on first crop progeny efforts. Are you buying or selling? It's a contentious one, but I'd say sell. Okay, show me, show me your working. Why are you selling? It's very obvious every year the the first season sires um, and it's not just Magic Millions at all the main sales here. Um, you know, get get prior, prioritized, um, and then you know you you see the the result of that. Then uh, you know at the stud farms, often at the stallion farms, then trying to um, get mares to second season stallions because you genuinely there are some breeders out there who literally refuse to breed to a second season sire because of it you know they think they'll um they um won't have the same opportunity to get them into the sale obviously at come yearling time so it's definitely an issue and it's, it's definitely a thing um but for me i think what bothers me more is actually the proven sires like that can probably suffer and um, from the numbers of first season sires I get in. Like I, I was looking the other day, you know, a horse like Star Turn, <clears throat> he's doing great things. Yeah. Great things on the track. Throws a lovely type of horse. Uh, he only has a handful in Magic Millions, you know. So I think it would be great if we could somehow balance out the, the whole thing a bit more. Um, I, and then, you know, if you want an example of a second season star, like from a Kumar perspective, you've got Saxon Warrior, his yearlings so tremendously his first yearlings this year made great money i think you know sold up to 400,000 in australia he's going great guns with his first northern hemisphere runners he's had trial winners here he's had trial winner in new zealand and i don't think he has won in book one of magic millions mm. and that's not enough in the horse you know he, he's a lovely horse but i mean he's gotten great support but um, i'm not sure where all his yearlings this year are hiding but they're not um, they're not lining up at magic millions it seems yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's a there's a caveat we should probably put in in there as well, isn't there? Because Magic Millions is so early in the season uh, that you, you tend to second season size tend to be judged on potential. By the time Easter comes around, they're a little bit more exposed, or their progeny are, aren't they? Yeah, and I think often you know you, you kind of you have some people wanting to actually put their second season ones in the earlier sales because, you know, they're worried maybe if the horse doesn't kick, um, you'll be in trouble. Whereas at least if you are selling them in January, you know, a lot of them necessarily mightn't have had run, even one runner yet. So, you know, you're sort mm. of full of promise, let's say. 
Whereas, you know, you can take, you can roll the dice and take a gamble and, and um, you might be richly rewarded, you know, selling one in Easter if, you know, they've, if they've thrown up a, a slipper winner in the meantime or something. But uh, yeah, on the flip side, they might have had 20 runners by then and, and not done too much. So it's, it's, it is sort of a, something that you weigh up and when you are trying to place those yearlings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve Davis made a similar point to the one you just made. I, I, I talked to him about uh, selling horses before and after a Caraca million or a Magic Millions. And he used to say that, I imagine he still does, that uh, he preferred to sell stock of horses that had runners in the Magic Millions before the Magic Millions, rather than sell the stock of the one horse that had got a Magic Millions winner, for the very reason you said, there's still hope. Yeah. You know, there's still hope of a variety of horses getting that big win on the Saturday. Whereas on the Saturday evening, you know, only one sire got that, that big win. Uh, I guess it's less less so now that there's a whole race day uh, attached to it. Uh, could I ask you, how much of a factor, and we'll, I'll go through the two-year-old results in, in a little while, but how much of a factor are these early two-year-old results versus what trainers are experiencing behind the scenes with these horses that have had their first runners leading into their second batch of yearlings? Uh, I think the the trainer's chat is probably uh, more influential. Like even, yeah. you know, you, you, you see it on, on from a, the stud farms and breeding point of view. Like people aren't too concerned, particularly if you have a horse, that, a stallion that um, is expected, you know, to be more a three-year-old sire lifted than a two-year-old sire. A lot of people will actually take note of actually what the trainers are saying about them and the breakers and, you know, if, if those trainers are going back um, in their second season buying more by that same stallion, you know, that's generally a fairly good in- indicator that they like the few they already have in their stable. Um, because I think for like the Magic Million sale, plenty of those stallions won't have even had a runner yet um, come January. So... You, you you know, and if they've only had one or two runners and they haven't won, I, I don't think anyone's going to hold it against the, the, the stallion. Um, yeah. But, like, it, it certainly has an influence if if, the, if that one or two runners happens to have won the, the Magic Million race in January or something ahead of the sale. But otherwise, I don't think um, it has a particular negative effect when they've, when they've had so few to the races to begin with at that point. Yeah. Last year's first season size were pretty... Uh pretty epic bunch to to be honest and thus far in the season we're seeing harry angels on top he's had four runners for two winners and one black type horse the, the talented arkansas kid uh at mooney valley behind him is trapeze artist he's had one winner from seven runners and he was sort of another one of the big names brave smash is up there he's had a winner encryption hasn't had any winners yet but prize money from uh the rex lip train keyboard has uh, got him up into fourth by prize money and then performer comes in uh, in fifth the interesting story i think uh, early doors is stratosphere in tasmania he's the only other sire apart from harry angel with two winners thus far he doesn't have any gold coast yearlings but has 12 entered in the the tassie millions uh, sale this time last year interestingly the number one first season sire was the mission Nine runners for, for, for two winners, followed by Heroic Valor. So two Queensland sires. Russian Revolution was sitting third at this stage, and he ended up taking out the crown. So uh, look, there's two schools here. I would contend that at this point, the the current bunch haven't hit the ground running quite as quickly as last year's. But the Mission and Heroic Valor are from a long tradition of Queensland-based stallions that do get off to a fly because there's a lot of opportunity in Queensland yeah. in the late late spring and summer for two-year-olds. And it's worth keeping in mind if you're shopping for cheap horses that have their first yearlings this year, right? Yeah, and um, like the, there's, just, like, there's way more two-year-old races in Queensland to begin with, but um, their prize money is very good. So um, mm. if, if I was a trainer, like, yeah, you'd, you'd be shopping. For those types of stallions but yeah generally like we always normally see you know they'll they'll um, be ahead of their peers with their first two-year-old results and those queensland based stallions often but you know by the end of the season generally it's, it's often a case of quality over quantity and i think yeah you, you'll often um, the other guys kind of catch up and, and pass them out once the bigger 
better racing, I suppose, gets underway. Point of view, breeding, like I'm trying to do best by my mares and generally for me that means starting them off, their careers with, with proven stallions, but like the commercial line of thought is, you know, send your unproven mare to an unproven stallion and you, you'll get more money, which is unfortunate, but like I, I, I just, I do my own thing anyway and I, I try and stick with the proven ones as much as I can. Um, but you would like to, yeah, see breeders better rewarded for that, I think, at the sales, that's for sure. Because, like, the trainers always want them. That's the frustrating thing. Um, they always find their buyers at the sales, but it's just unfortunate that I think the sales company, yeah, just, you know, think they'll make more money, I suppose, with all these first season ones, and they won't necessarily, but anyway, that's how it is. Shiny, shiny newness uh, wins the day. Well, if you're listening and you have a different opinion to Fanula or myself, make sure you hit us up at, at, at a horse walks pod uh, and, and your thoughts. And look, you know, it's a guessing game. We try. It's that classic thing of trying to predict what horses that we don't own are going to uh, going to uh, make in a in a sale. It's it's kind of just an academic exercise at the end of the day. And that's last call for Nola. Winding down, winding down for the year. What are you looking forward to in the next seven or up until the new year? What are you looking forward to? Um, I think just uh, being able to get back and actually looking after my own horses after, you know, the last two months with my leg injury, I've had to, you know, have um, several of them adjusting out in other places. And then I've had... Uh, my good friend Narelle has been looking after the ones I, I have out here in Jerry's Plains for me. So it'll be good just to actually be able to go out, do that um, twice a day, every day, and um, get, you know, kind of handling the foals and yeah, seeing, seeing what's going to come through for me and see if there's any, um, any nice ones to hopefully sell and make a few quid in the next few months. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, hopefully, you know, another Japanese champion turns up. Uh, <laughs> A real one this time a real, would be... Yeah, a real update. <laughs> would be nice. Well, thank you. Thank you so for everything you've uh, you've done so far this year, and I, I hope you have a Merry Christmas, Fanula. Well done. Thanks. Uh, that's it for Episode 7. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It's a big help, and if you know a budding enthusiast who hasn't yet put this show in their ears, give us a wrap to them, please. Those of you having a break, enjoy and recharge. Next week, the whole team will be contributing to a little end-of-year special, so don't miss that. But for now, I've been Gus Rowland, and this horse has walked.